Hello and welcome to Totem Talks. I'm Helen Fruin. I'm Mark Smith. And today we are talking assessment design, how to select the best candidates, how to get the best talent. Because there's a war. A war for talent. Mm, again. Always. Circular economies. It's awesome though. And uh, so if you've been following us for the last uh, six weeks or so on various different platforms, you'll know that we've, we've moved this podcast to one a, one a month. Uh, how's that working out for you? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we've always said that the podcasts are a really useful check-in for us to say, mm. what are our clients talking about? What do people need? And dropping it down to monthly, I mean, it's quite nice from a capacity perspective because it's less work for us to do. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, I'm really liking the whole theme. Mm. So each month has got a theme. Let's share everything that seems useful about that theme. It's really I mean, yeah, I've got to admit, I'm quite liking it too. If anyone who's, is listening and has an opinion on, on what we're doing so far this year, drop us a note. We love getting in touch with people. Uh, and this month, we are going to be talking about assessment design. Does it, as Helen has said, getting the best candidates. Last month, we talked about... Role profiling. Well done. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite exciting, really. We do have a few things to rattle off through, though. So where would you like to begin? Well, I guess it's a good follow-on from role profiling to say, if you've, in role profiling, decided what you're looking for, this this is the kind of candidate we're after, then to... Think about how we interview for that or assess for that. We need to kind of shrink down the entire job description or role profile into what are the specific behaviours we want to measure for in interview or assessment. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, I guess from a so if you think about this from an operational perspective, I'm very good at seeing looking at a job description and saying must be comfortable with spreadsheets. And then I'll give someone a test on Excel. Is that is that it? That's is it exactly as simple it. as that? Yeah. You're, you, what you're doing is looking at the role and saying, what skills does someone need? Okay, this person needs to be good with spreadsheets. Can you clarify what they need to be able to do with a spreadsheet so you can then create the right kind of assessment to do that? If you said this person needs to be good at leadership, that's a very broad thing. Good with spreadsheets yeah, and yeah, leadership, that, very broad terms. Yeah. What specifically do you want somebody to be able to do with spreadsheets? What specifically are you looking for in leadership? Because that might be basic people management. Can you run a team? Can you deliver performance? Mm -hmm. Or it might be visionary leadership, commercial leadership. So the more you can clarify what is it we're looking for, what's the behavior we actually want to measure, then you can see, okay, how can we then assess that? And given you're the expert in the room, how would you go about assessing that? Well, there's nothing really new in the research on how to assess behaviour in the best way. The, that the seems surprising. <sighs> it seems like there would be great commercial value within that research if you could push the ba- if you could push our knowledge further. There's no question it would be commercially valuable for that research to be pushed further. I think the issue you've got in that line of research on you know what best predicts who's good at the job is that you're not likely to find an organisation that says, I tell you what, we're just going to recruit 100 people. We're going to give 100 people jobs and we're going to give those 100 people lots of different assessments and some of which might say they're not going to be good at the job, but we're going to give them the job anyway so we can see if we accurately predicted that they would not be good at the job. Mm. So because you're not going to find many people who go, yeah, that sounds like a great investment of my company money, you don't then get the really pure research insights about what is the best predictor of performance in the job. Commercial barriers to growing commercially. Wow. 
a paradox within assessment center design. Who knew the one existed? Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So when I say there's not much new in the research, the research that you many people will have seen uh, that's been around since 2001 is the meta-analysis on what does seem to be the best predictor of job performance, mm-hmm. which says that the best thing you can do is use a structured interview combined with a work sample assessment, which is exactly what you've described with Excel spreadsheets. It's where you give somebody a sample of the job. So if you want somebody to work with spreadsheets, get them to work with spreadsheets. If you want someone to have difficult client conversations, get them to have a difficult client conversation. You could role play it with them. If you want somebody to give complex presentations and explain complex information clearly to a lay person, then get them to do that and give that presentation as part of their interview. So this is the opportunity is to give somebody one, a really realistic job preview. This Mm. is what you're going to be expected to do. And then two, you can assess how well they do it as opposed to the classic interview thing of somebody just saying, oh yeah, I'm really good at presenting things. Yeah, I'm really good. I'm really good at taking a complex idea and explaining it simply. Oh, you are, are you? Let's Mm, test that, shall we? Let's actually put that to the test. I think within that, so my mind has leaped to the candidate experience. Mm. I'm going to say, I I think I spotted something on your LinkedIn feed recently about putting candidates under pressure. Mm. I think it's uh, something on our website as well. Actually, how fair is that? Because within, you know, I've always found assessment centers when I'm going through them to be quite um, challenging emotionally, at the very least. And it's an unnatural environment to be in. So how well can you actually extract somebody's performance when you've put them in that kind of environment? And this is where, as you say, you're seeing posts on on LinkedIn. My, My point is to say, don't put the candidate under any extra pressure, they're already under loads of pressure. So it's not to say that the assessment itself should be more pressured than a normal interview. Mm. And there's lots you can do to put a candidate at ease. You know, if you really formal, a candidate arrives on site, you're like, welcome to your assessment center. You will sit here, you will read these instructions. (laughs) You know, you're going to add to that anxiety and pressure. Whereas if you're really friendly and lovely and actually, you know, you, you're deciding whether or not you want to work for me as well. What questions do you have for me? Should we get to know each other a bit? Shall I tell you a bit about my background? You've got this lovely opportunity to build a relationship and put someone at ease. And then you can say, right, here's the exercises. Here are the exercises we're going to use to uh, assess your potential and, and behavior for the role. And if you've told the candidate that in advance as well, they know what they're coming in for. Mm. I think there's there's a there's a voice in my head that I'm going to shush in just a second. But the voice in my head is that that sounds lovely, sounds very very fluffy. Um, I shall get the cotton wool out for people. Um, as an operator, I purely want to know if someone can do the job. But I think the old adage that we hire for aptitude and we fire for attitude is absolutely right. So if you're unable to build a relationship with someone quite quickly after you've extended that kind of olive branch, personality wise. They might not fit. We get into a whole kind of a whole, a whole kind mess. of mess of you know you just didn't fit. Kind I of didn't stuff. like you. I didn't like you is is ultimately the answer, and that's kind of the tension within assessment design, right? Yes, completely. You're, you're looking for someone who is competent, and you're trying to screen out your bias towards people who you just naturally like without you know making a mistake within the hiring process. And that's where if you build an assessment that covers both technical skill and behavioral skill, Mm. you can pick that out. So if you just used your spreadsheet assessment, 
then you know, okay, this person's good with spreadsheets, but I've got no idea what they're like to work with. So I'll have a coffee with them and see if I like them. Massively mm. subjective, not fair, not appropriate. If you used your spreadsheet test and then some other assessment around, I mean, you could use a competency-based interview in terms of when have they uh, collaborated or broken down silos, when have they led projects. So you're starting to pick up on how do they influence people, collaborate with people. That's going to give you much more of a flavor of what they're actually like to work with as opposed to just, do I like them? Yes. Now, this brings me on to the other point that was floating in my mind was there was a dark side to assessment design, and that is actually purposely triggering people emotionally into them making a decision just to leave the assessment center. So I've seen this in action. In this particular assessment center, a group of 60 people in a room all given some very silly instructions, give you some more instructions, and then you would have an in-out matrix that you would have to try and solve as quickly as you could. And this went on for half an hour, and it was it was impossible to do. And 10% of the people in that room said, the job isn't worth it, I'm off. And they left. And after the, you know, it was a full day of assessments, after the, you know, when we were in sort of the wash-up period, I'm, I'm, I'm in a quick chat with the assessors. I'm like, what on earth was 1.30 to 2.30? All about? That was crazy. What could that possibly have been assessing? And, you know, he said to me, it's assessing whether you have got the patience and the temperament to actually work here. Because if you get frustrated and angry enough to just walk off the job, we don't want you working here. And I, th- I you know, it just dawned on me that actually, in many That's ways, genius. it's genius. When we talk about sort of best practice and BPS standards, triggering somebody into an emotional response gets a little bit, ooh. I think there's a lot about how you frame this. If you call it triggering an emotional response and then seeing how they react under that emotional response, that sounds a bit Machiavellian and evil mm. and, and, as you say, a bit dark side. If you just say, this is a test of your patience and, ha- and what you're like at sticking at something that isn't quite making sense, you're not quite sure what you're doing, and are you as interested in this job to stick that out? Mm. That's totally fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, it, yeah. But, yeah, and good. I think that give us one of the ideas for the karaoke session we have in one of our workshops. Just for context, everybody, the, the workshop is emotional intelligence and we're talking about fast thinking, slow thinking, sort of how confused you can get when you have an emotional reaction to a problem. And just to demonstrate this so people have got a live example to work with, we tell them that uh, they're about to, one of them, one lucky winner is about to get up in front of everybody and sing whatever song they want. And we're going to give them 10 seconds to think about it. And then at random, we'll pick someone. And 90% of people's faces drop and you can see panic in their eyes. And it's an absolutely perfect example of how emotional responses cloud your logical ability to kind of work your way through the the middle of something. And obviously, there's always one person who's like, oh, I want to sing. I have been looking forward to this day. (laughs) (laughs) I have wanted to stand and sing in front of my comrades. Um, But it is is an interesting concept in assessment design. I don't actually see the emotional design element or or, or elements of assessment centers where it's actually designed to trigger an emotional response too often. Yeah, I think, you know, as you say, with that karaoke example, that's in the safe environment of a workshop. It's a Mm. development space. To put somebody under that kind of emotional pressure in an assessment context, you know, okay, you might say, well, they need to be able to cope under pressure, but that kind of pressure? It's a peculiar kind of pressure. 
again, in terms of a realistic, a realistic job preview and a work sample assessment, could you not mirror the type of actual pressure they would be under? For example, if I think about an intray exercise, you've got, you know, 20 emails, five reports, three extra documents, and you've got an hour to work your way through that and work out what the priorities are. That's the kind of pressure we're all under every day, where it's multiple deadlines or lots of prioritizing to do. So that makes more sense to put somebody under that kind of pressure than create this weird, false, strange emotional response. Are we contradicting ourselves here? I don't think so, because you're, if it, as I say, I think it's about framing. If you frame that what that's measuring is emotional responses, you can say, okay, we're looking more at emotions here and we're creating that emotional trigger and so on. If you just say you're looking at a behavior of tenacity and patience, some people have that and some people didn't and left. And left. So that's mainly from the candidate perspective. Uh, I would also want to throw in there some best practice ideas that you can probably fill in the gaps for me. So that is measuring every competency twice if you have it. And also using different people to to make the actual assessment. Why is that? So measuring each behavior or competency twice is about giving people a fair opportunity because, you know, as you say, this is a fake environment. It's an anxiety-driven environment. If somebody makes a mistake, oh, you didn't get the job, look, because you messed up that exercise, that seems like a bit of a missed opportunity. So we say measure everything twice so that you get opportunity to, to demonstrate that behavior. Why do you get different observers to give their feedback? Well, one, because of unconscious bias and the fact that we will all have different biases. So it starts to not necessarily even out our biases, but at least challenge them. If I say, well, I really liked him and you say, well, I didn't like him. Well, one, we're not supposed to be assessing whether or not we like them. That wasn't the point. Mm. But two, we can now challenge each other on those biases. And so if I say, well, I scored him a four and you say I scored him a two, we're just slightly more objectively talking about whether or not we liked him. We can challenge each other on, okay, what made you give that rating? What did you see? Having that debate just forces us to be that bit more objective. And that's really useful. Uh, the other thing, again, is in terms of interpretation, because when you talked about your spreadsheet assessment, are we really clear on what success looks like in mm. that spreadsheet assessment? And if we're not 100%, you know, there's a correct answer then again, we've got subjectivity. So having a couple of people observe that and have a bit of debate encourages us to move away from subjective into a more kind of what actually does the role need? What are we looking for? Conversation. Absolutely. I think this is where it starts to tick um, my boxes on my side of the business as well. So if you're running a large scale assessment center for a minimum wage job, you may not have to go to these lengths in terms of assessment center design. But certainly when you get into middle management and into the C-suite, what you're starting to do now is manage risk. If you cannot demonstrate that your assessment process was fair and balanced, people are going to come back to you. And when that salary for that role is in sort of six figures, seven figures, with share options and cars and all kinds of lovely things, it's almost in someone's interest to actually just go and have a quick chat with their solicitor and say, you know what, I don't think that assessment center was fair. You need, to, you need to be able to stand up and say, actually, we did follow best practice in every possible way. Here are our notes that are crisp and clean. And I know you're about to have a, 
a right little <laughs> soapbox moment. <laughs> I, I should prepare my eardrums for the note-taking session. <laughs> but it's it's about managing risk within our business, certainly because our, our insurance liability only goes up to a certain amount, but also for our clients' perspective as well. Um, if, if you're making market-moving decisions in terms of your hires, you need to have a solid platform to be assessing people from. Which is why it always shocks me when people say, oh, these assessment centres sound great for graduates, but we'd never do this for senior leaders, would we? Surely you'd do more. You better do. You better do. Because if on the assumption that one day I do leave this fabulous ship totem... Um, I will probably do just that. I will, if, if I don't, if I suspect that the assessment centre that I'm going through for whatever role it is, I will be asking a question because I'm I'm I'm, I'm entitled to um, that. That is protected by law. So why would you not do that? Protect yourself. Protect the risk of choosing the wrong candidate. Protect the candidate as well in in understanding what the role is for them. Mm-hmm. So this idea of oh, but they're an MD. I can't possibly ask them those questions or expect them to do this. Or do they want the role? Yeah. You know, you've got to put egos aside here and talk about... Or, or in all fairness, I would actually say you've got to bring an ego into the room from the HR side and say, actually, you're the kingmaker right now. It might, it might feel uncomfortable to you and you, you might be more comfortable in sort of the middle manager's face, but you're, you're about to make somebody very wealthy. So you better do a good job. Mm. Shall we jump onto your note-taking section? Absolutely. Oh, here it comes. Prepare for the speech. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, this is about how you take your notes when you are interviewing somebody, assessing someone in any way, shape, or form. Most of us will either make very few notes or maybe just have a score sheet in front of us and sort of tick off scores for people, or we might make rough notes where we describe our judgment of the person. So, I might write down, you know, did well on the spreadsheet test or good project management skills. The problem with those notes is that they're not objective, they're judgments. And so if I am watching you do the spreadsheet assessment and I write down, oh, did the spreadsheet assessment very well? That judgment that I've just written down could be subject to my unconscious bias and the fact that I quite liked you. And even though technically you messed up the assessment, you seem like a nice person. If instead I write down what you did, pressed this button on the spreadsheet, created this chart, used this function, then when you've left the interview, I can look at my notes in black and white with less of the temptation to be affected by your personality and the way that you look and all of those things that drive our biases to be more objective and say, did you perform well in that exercise? Is my sense that you can do this job? So to be more objective, we need to move away from writing down judgments in our notes and instead write down a summary of what the candidate does and what they say. So if you interview someone, you say, tell me about your project management experience, instead of them writing a note to say, seems good and experienced in project management, actually write down, has led three global projects in the past two years, had two of them go over budget, this was why, this is what they did, you know, write down what they said, and then you can be more objective. Do you think it would be an interesting experiment to see if, I mean, I'm probably talking experienced assessors here, but if if you could swap notes, could you, would you make the same assessment? I think that, I mean, that would be as impartial as you can get, right? Absolutely. Because you're literally reading about someone's experience, yeah. capability, behavior. And if you've made very clear descriptions on what the job requires, that should be really easy to score up. Mm. Ooh. My issue would be whether or not you could read my handwriting. 
your your writing is is special. Horrendous. It's very special. Well, aside from my beautiful handwriting <laughs> skills, I think we're probably done for the day. So, listeners, thank you for joining us always. And uh, our next month. Uh, we move into March. We've got International Women's Day. So we're going to be looking at different versions of diversity, equity, inclusion, supporting people in the workplace, career transitions. That's going to be our month of social media content. What exactly will we discuss on the podcast? Wait and see. Or wait and hear would be more accurate. Wait and hear would be more accurate because I might not actually make it in March. Oh. A guest speaker. Oh, I see. Very good. Have a fabulous day, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye.